Hello and welcome to Geek Between the Lines, the podcast that explores compelling ideas in some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Brittany. And I'm Chris. And this week we are continuing our read-through of Catching Fire, looking at chapters 16 and 17. Chris, why don't you start us off with a recap? So Hamish instructs Katniss and Peeta to find allies during the training sessions. So Katniss spends time with tech inventors Wyrus and Beatty from District 3 and 80-year-old Mags from District 4. All the victors eat together as one big group and joke with each other, which makes Katniss and Peeta realize how hard it will be to kill any of them. Katniss impresses the other victors with her archery, but none of them are clear what new talents they can show the game makers. When it's time for Katniss's private training session, she decides she wants to show them that they are vulnerable to the whims of the capital too. So she ties a noose and hangs a dummy with the name of the executed game maker Seneca Crane, painted on it in red. The game makers react with shock and horror, which is repeated when Katniss explains her actions to the prep team, especially after Peter explains how he painted a portrait of Rue in an attempt to hold the game makers accountable. They tell Hamish they won't have any allies, and Peter and Katniss agree to go down fighting, understanding that the odds are against them after their top-scoring 12s put targets on their backs. The two of them spend a surprisingly free day together on the roof before they have to prep for their interviews. After a tearful last session with their prep team, Katniss is forced to wear a wedding dress on Snow's orders. Many of the other victors use their interviews to attack the Capitol and Snow for the quell, eliciting intense responses from the crowd. This culminates when Katniss twirls, and her dress catches fire and burns away, revealing the Mockingjay outfit underneath. So again, a lot happens. Yeah, yeah, pretty uh, extensive chapters here, a lot going on. I like these books. You should like these books. They're great. Yeah. Or else what are you doing with your time, Chris? (laughs) Good question. Well, why don't we move into our first section, which is striking moments. What is really standing out to you from these chapters in this read-through? So first off, it was really sweet to see Katniss noticing how Chaff's boisterousness could be good for Hamish's dark thoughts. Mm -hmm. Like she says after she gets to know him a bit better how she can see why Chaff in particular is good for Hamish. And he's making fun of himself all the time, which I could see Hamish enjoying. Totally. So, yeah, I think that it just was a a nice moment of Katniss, who, yeah, is having a very complicated relationship with everyone, especially the other victors, like Chaff, and who hasn't gotten along with Hamish very much this book, but still is able to appreciate what positive things Chaff brings to Hamish's life. (laughs) That's funny that you say she hasn't got along with Hamish very much this book. I would say much more so this book than last book. (laughs) I mean, that's true, yes. (laughs) But yeah, I thought that was just a, a nice moment again of Katniss kind of showing her compassion and care for people. Yeah. I also was, I think, very struck by how Katniss describes herself right before her interview, or right before they go out for the interviews, where she basically takes on a role as bigger than herself, as as being ready to be a martyr for the rebellions. She talks about how she's not nervous, how she is ready to sacrifice herself so Peta can come home, but also recognizes that even that might not be possible, but, you know, they're, they agree to, yeah, go down fighting, and she recognizes how important even that is to help to inspire others. If she's going to die, at least she can do so in a way that brings some positive aspects as well. Yeah, I just, I thought that that was a a real big character moment for Katniss that I didn't remember happening at this time. And being able to to read through these chapters a little bit more intentionally, I think, helped me to really recognize how powerful a moment that is. Yeah, absolutely. And I really like that it's not just, oh, we'll go down fighting. It's hopefully people will see that I am trying to help Peter survive. I'm trying to save him, not myself. Mm -hmm. And that will be... Yeah, an act of dissent, mm-hmm. rather than I'm just fighting for my own life, which would not be martyrdom. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. The last moment that I actually wanted to, to dive a little bit more deeply into was when Katniss is thinking about Effie, and how Effie, being upset about the circumstances, 
Katniss says that in capital terms, that would be considered a true tragedy. I just started thinking about the idea of tragedy and what evokes a tragedy is so different for different societies and different peoples and different communities. And it says a lot about those societies. You know, what they see as a loss, as a tragic loss. But also, I think it says a lot about how they understand agency. There's a lot of kind of tragedies within our own society that, that you know, are about... They're tragic because the protagonist's own flaws result in their eventual downfall. You know, think about, like, Odysseus, for example, in that sense. But there are others that are about much greater powers that are causing the tragic end. That could be gods, it could be families, like with Romeo and Juliet, it could be ideas of fate. But what makes it tragic and what leads to that downfall, I think, it can be very different in different stories and in different time periods and societies and, and so forth. And so when I was thinking about what it would be mean to be a true tragedy in the capital and, and what that says about the capital, it makes me think about how, according to the capital's ideals, the quarter quell taking from Effie all the things that she gained in the 74th games, acclaim and sense of victory that she, she gained there, um, for it to turn negative in the quarter quell, I think that the idea of that being a tragedy really highlights how, for the capital, they see the specifics of the quell, of, of it going after past victors, as more of fate than of a decision. It's something that it, they, they're not tying to a specific system or person or anything like that. It's just, oh, of course, the year that she would have it, this happen must be fated to be the year after District 12 wins for the first time in a long time. And Effie has this kind of accomplishment. Hmm. And it just, yeah, kind of highlights how they are expected not to question anything. How they don't really seem to think about agency in that way. That the world is just as it is. And the hierarchies that exist as they are. And the truth of the Hunger Games are just as they are. So that tragedy for her kind of comes through that paradigm of looking at the world. I, I wasn't thinking of that at all, but as you were talking, then I was thinking of, in the capital's eyes, maybe tragedy only happens to people who have power. Mm. Even if they see what's happening to the victors being in this 75th Hunger Games as tragic, well, they also gained some amount of power mm -hmm. after after their own games. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it also kind of shows who is important, right? Because it's not tragic for most of the tributes. Exactly. Because they're barely people, mm -hmm. you know, to the capital. So, yeah, I just, I find, I found that kind of deep dive interesting and what it can say about, yeah, the capital, particularly as we start seeing the capital citizens react to the interviews and how the victors are bringing up I think, a different perspective than that capital perspective of what is tragic about this and what can be done about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But what about you? What are your striking moments? Well, one is just a moment I have to mention, and that's when Mag says that she's going to take a nap for her private session oh, yeah, with the game makers. It's very good. You may not have felt anything for Max, but then as soon as you read that line, now you do. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But another thing that was really kind of interesting to me this read-through is looking kind of more closely at the cunning defiance that several of the victors show during the interviews, particularly because... Before, I, I've i always loved that moment, but I kind of lumped it all together. Mm. But I think that some of them are doing things that are more bold and dangerous in what they're saying in their interviews than others. And so there were three that were kind of standing out to me in this read-through. And one is Kashmir. Mm. And I think for her, it's so bold and dangerous because she's the first person to speak. She's the District 1 female tribute, and mm. so she goes first. She sets 
the entire tone and and gives everyone that comes after her kind of a wave to go on because it's it's hard to be the first one to go you know yeah the second person is Beatty because he brings legality into it mm-hmm. and this was actually reminding me of back in my biblical studies times the book of Job when Job is like questioning God saying does God judge unrighteously does the almighty pervert justice mm-hmm. actually in in how that narrative goes Job is basically putting God on trial mm-hmm. for God's actions or or his understanding of God's actions which is so audacious <laughs> and I love it and yeah, not that I'm complaining God and snow here in any way, but I think Beatty has a bit of that fire and boldness here because mm-hmm. he's accusing the all-powerful of the capital who made the laws of not following them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's just audacious. Yeah. And lastly, I think Cedar pointing directly to Snow, saying that he's either not all-powerful or implying if he is, that means he's evil and wants this to happen. Mm. Directly calling out the dictator Mm -hmm. of an oppressive regime is ultimately dangerous. Absolutely. But it's the way she does it is so genius, so savvy, by framing it as like, well, in District 11, this is what we think, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of. Maybe we just don't know everything. Exactly. But Mm -hmm. then with her framing the question that way, then there are two answers. It's either Snow is all-powerful and could change this, or Snow isn't all-powerful, which Mm -hmm. is empowering to the district. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So great. It's, It's brilliant. And so, yeah, those three in particular were standing out to me as doing something slightly different in and different in different sorts of dangerous ways yeah yeah absolutely i think that i often think back to like johanna mason's Mm -hmm. speech there yet each of them are all really interesting and really engaging and important oh i know i i want a transcript of all of them (laughs) (laughs) the last striking moment i wanted to talk about is the wedding dress Mm. and that choice and katniss thinks, I suppose, since I was the greatest offender, my pain and loss and humiliation should be the br- in the brightest spotlight. Yeah, I, I guess I this time around I was just wondering about that and thinking that I think it's more than just that. I mm. think it's Snow also trying to take the fire out of Cadmus, the, mm. the bite the the things that are bold and defiant and dangerous about her and domesticate her yeah in this visual way i think he's trying to make the last image that people have of her that sticks in their mind and that i'm sure after she dies in the games will be maybe the only image they ever show of her again you know it it's too have people remember her as related to PETA mm-hmm. and a love story, not related to her own revolutionary acts. Yeah. To present her as not, yeah, this angry or sad or belligerent or even funny girl from the games that they saw in the 74th games and just try to rewrite that with, this tragic love story sort of way and no one is fighting in a wedding dress you know Mm -hmm. that that's not a revolutionary garb in you know unless maybe you have not been allowed to access marriage or something like that yeah so yeah i I was just kind of thinking him particularly requesting this with the intention of taking some of the inspiration and the spark out of her. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's really astute because now I'm thinking also of the color white as being like innocent or Mm. pure, which is non-threatening. Yeah. And this is, of course, why Cinna's choice to to change it is such an important one. Yeah. 
Absolutely, because at the end of last book, Sin is trying to make sure that she can stay yeah. alive and can continue being this revolutionary person. But now that can't happen as it has been hoped that it could happen. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, let's be real. They all know that the capital is going sure to kill dies. her. Yeah. And so it's not like, oh, well, she could spend five years doing things in her own district, behind the scenes, things like that, and then we'll present this innocent picture to the Capitol and, and things like that, so she's non-threatening. Yeah. But at this point, it's like, no, now, now we're just going to show you for who you actually are, and you are threatening. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, tied to the last outfit she wore on the chariots, and she is above you. Mm-hmm. You are beneath her notice. Yeah, it's a... Uh, a great example of, of how the work of the stylists is an important part of how to create a symbol. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Meanwhile, Snow is trying to create his own, mm -hmm. but I don't think it's working well for him. No. He's not a stylist for a reason. Yeah, yeah. People in the audience are just getting real upset. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I can imagine just like the other victors that are glaring because they're so horrified and angry that Snow would do this, or first when they thought Cinna would do this. And I wonder if it's hitting the districts that way, too. Yeah. I mean, I imagine so. Totally. Oh, Snow, <laughs> look at your short-sighted spitefulness. <laughs> I mean, he's trying to, I think he's trying to do something, like, with intellectual reasons for it, but it's mm -hmm. not working. Yeah. But why don't we go into our From Another Point of Views. This is a section where we look at other characters' point of views for a specific scene or something that's happening instead of Katniss's. Yeah, so the first one I want to talk about was Darius and mm -hmm. what Darius' perspective would have been when Katniss reaches for his hand as they are mm. cleaning up the peas that, they, that she spilt. Yeah, I just think about how him gripping her hand back shows that he, I think, appreciates her. Mm -hmm. That he doesn't see her as, as she feared as, you know, something that helped to destroy his life. Yeah. But in fact, feels a sense of kinship or solidarity. That they are both victims of the capital. Mm-hmm. That though this is where his life is now, that at least if he's going to be an AVOX servant... Um, he's doing so in a space where there's at least one person who doesn't see him as such, but sees him as a whole person. I just can imagine how, even though this is something that is meant to, to be haunting for Katniss, if Darius is going to become an Avox, this might be something that's actually really meaningful for him to be able to, yeah, be with Katniss and even with Hamish and Peta, rather than just some random capital oligarch's house or what have you. Yeah, I mean, that little hand squeeze is the only goodbye sort of situation, you know, that yeah. he probably would think he could ever have. Mm -hmm. So even though it's, it's a terrible situation, yeah, I, I could picture just a tiny bit of gratefulness that at least he was able to have that. Absolutely, yeah. The other perspective I was thinking through was Kashmir and Gloss. How they invite Katniss over to do some training with them. And they have the kind of cool exchange. There's not really a friendship built or anything like that. But they are respectful to one another. You know, there's no bad blood. Even though, as Katniss mentions, they almost certainly knew and possibly mentored Marvel and Glimmer, who Katniss had killed in the previous games. Mm -hmm. And so thinking about their perspective on Katniss here is interesting because them inviting her over is, in a way, them having to deal with their own situation of knowing that they are very vulnerable and that really it makes me think that they probably, after however many years of mentoring, after being victors themselves, have been able to 
develop a more nuanced perspective on other victors, which is what Katniss and Peter are building here. It's so much harder to see people as villains or even enemies when you have that deeper understanding of the games and the capital and how even from District 1, you're still District. Yeah, I just, I think it's interesting, particularly considering how at the end of last book, we were talking about how Cato's death highlights that he's not the villain in that book. That mm -hmm. he, even though Katniss kind of at one point thought of him as such, that it would always come down to him and her, that really, that's not what it comes down to. It comes down to them against the Capitol. Absolutely. And so, yeah, I just, I, I appreciated that scene and it made me think about how they're probably a little bit further along in this recognition that none of them are really villains. All of them have been victimized by the capital, you know, even if it's to different extents. Yeah, that that is interesting. And also from a, a less positive <laughs> perspective. This is why we're, this is why we're, we're doing this. Uh, it's also a smart and strategic thing to do because in the last games, Katniss killed four out of the six careers. Mm -hmm. And they're the careers. They're the ones yeah. that have been training. And she's the District 12 girl yeah. who, in Ballad and Songbirds and Snakes, Snow describes as the worst tribute to be involved with. So, yeah. Yeah. So... If you're going to team up with anyone, you might you might want that. At least that consider person. it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but what what were the P's O V that you wanted to talk about? Oh, why did you say it that way? I don't, <laughs> I don't love that. So I was thinking about Finnick and him reading a poem mm. during his interview to the person that he loves in front of an audience who doesn't know him. Yeah who's only seen his facade and will misinterpret it. Mm -hmm. And poetry can be incredibly personal. In, in, in my opinion, the best poetry is incredibly personal. Mm -hmm. I was just imagining for 10 years, he's had some amount of walls and barrier between him and everyone else. Yeah. And... Now he's going to show a part of himself, a side to him that people don't know about. So it was just imagining his heart starting to like beat fast and him feeling kind of suddenly a bit too warm as the District 3 victors were finishing up their interviews, just with this almost sinking sense of dread mm. at bearing this piece of himself that the Capitol's never seen, but also being determined to do it, because if it's one of the last things that he does before he dies, he, he wants to show a part of himself, or he wants to say goodbye to someone. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't know if all of these victors had a similar situation to Katniss and Peeta. They didn't get any goodbyes. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I was just thinking about him thinking about the pain of saying goodbye, not only to someone you love, but on public television and with all of the posturing that he's learned and, and employed since childhood, I kind of wonder if he would even have been good at expressing his feelings, mm -hmm. you know? And since I'm not, <laughs> and I write poetry. Uh, I was just feeling like what Finnick could have been feeling. Interesting. Going into that. Yeah, I read that so differently because I am more comfortable performing. Mm -hmm. And I kind of see that as what he's doing here. Because I also see how effective that would be. Because everyone assumes that he's writing to some capital lover. Well, and that's what Katniss assumes mm -hmm. he's doing, right? That he's, like, this is his way of, totally. you know, helping foster this outrage in the Capitol. Yeah. And arguably, the idea that Finnick is in love with a Capitol person is the closest that a real 
relationship of equals can exist or in the minds of capital citizens. That a capital person and a district person, even a victor, can be in love with one another. Because we don't see any victors described as being in a relationship with someone from the capital. So it seems like there's probably still some taboo there. But, uh, so yeah, it's just, I think, an interesting, uh, very, very much a compelling moment. And one that we get described less than most of the other tributes who are up there. But yeah, I, you're you're right to to highlight how, assuming that he is writing to someone that he does actually love, how vulnerable that also is to to do so in a public place. Yeah, even you who loves performing, I don't think you would want to read something that you wrote on public television. Oh no, <laughs> exactly. No, not at all. <laughs> I wrote a. Uh, poem for my high school girlfriend and i had to leave the room when she read it (laughs) i couldn't even be next to her (laughs) the the great thing is i'm not like oh you've never written anything for me you should be grateful for that i was i was like (laughs) oh that's just hilarious I mean, probably a lot of people who write poetry in high school, it's pretty bad. Yeah, and I mean, I was pressured into it because she was like, I just love poetry. Like, why don't you write me a poem? And I was like, I guess if it'll make you happy. no, you can't ask someone to write a poem for you. That's, no. Yeah, so. uh, Yeah, but you're, you're not the most creative sparkle in the craft box (laughs) no very much very much not (laughs) (laughs) who knows maybe phoenix real bad at this too (laughs) i mean if all he's got is that sugar line (laughs) i wouldn't be surprised he's relying a little too much on his looks (laughs) annie reminds me of the sea But the other perspective that I was thinking about is just some random capital audience member Mm -hmm. during those interviews as well. Because previously I had mainly been thinking of the defiant things that Victor said that brought about capital citizens calling for change. Mm -hmm. But this read-through I sat with thinking about an audience member, you know, maybe even somebody who's watching from their home in the Capitol, seeing Mags in her interview. Mm-hmm. An 80-year-old with a speech disability who volunteered for traumatic death so that another victor wouldn't have to enter the arena. And so I was thinking about somebody seeing the injustice of not only an elderly person who likely underwent a stroke, Mm -hmm. even being in the arena to begin with, with all of these people who are so much younger, but also seeing how the Capitol doesn't even give her access to someone to help translate for her or let her type up her answers ahead of time Mm. or any sort of access to accommodations that should be given my own mother is 70 and had a stroke a couple of years ago. And though she is able to use verbal communication without much difficulty, it just fills me with more anger, you know, like mm. thinking about this situation. And so I was imagining a capital viewer who had a parent or a friend that faces similar challenges as Mags does just being livid at the inequality of it Mm -hmm. and or it could be somebody you know if they have a loved one with an addiction and that they can clearly see affecting some of the other tributes yeah it it making their blood boil Mm -hmm. and even though Katniss doesn't give much thought to those who aren't able to audibly speak out in dissent like some of the others are, that doesn't mean that they aren't bringing attention to the oppression and injustice of the capital, uh, just in a different way. 
and maybe those alternative ways could incite anger in viewers just as sharply. So yeah, I was, I was thinking about that. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's a very interesting perspective. And I, I like it, especially how kind of specific you, you thought about it. You know, it's not just a person, but someone who kind of has more uh, specific elements, which I think is helpful in building that perspective. Yeah. Because we're thinking about the people in the Capitol who are yelling things the super or fans. crying. Or, yeah. yeah. Only being angry because of the people who they like and adore and yeah. feel affection for because they're charismatic like Finnick or Johanna or whatever. But I'm sure that's not everybody. Mm-hmm. I'm sure other people would feel the anger not because Finnick is beautiful, but th- they have other reasons to be angry. Yeah. And it's not because oh, of the charm and the performance of people. It's because of the opposite. It's because of the lack of performance of the people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is in of itself a way of them seeing them as people. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, why don't we go into our touch points? This is where we look at things that we see happening in these chapters that also correspond to things happening in our world. The major touch points are actually two that I have kind of almost contradictory points about. Interesting. That both have to do with labor. The first being Wyrus's invention, which was a something that would automatically detect how thick a fabric is uh, for, you know, designing clothes and things like that. Mm-hmm. And it kind of just reminded me of something that... Is this assumption that I think that we've had in at least for the last hundred years as a society, which is that machines and automation can just do things better than humans, and that that is going to make things more effective and efficient and all these other kinds of things, but it ultimately leads away from first off artisanship, the idea that someone who is an actual master of their craft can exceed the work of a machine. I mean, it's for the purposes of mass production. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the other thing is that it it means that we don't have masters of crafts anymore or very, very few of them because for the most part, we're only focusing on efficiency. And um, yeah, it's just something that kind of sparked that thought in my mind. And then as I was thinking about Katniss and Peeta's day off... I started thinking <laughs> about like kind of the opposite. the title of a fan fiction, Katniss and Peeta's Day Off. <laughs> exactly, right? <laughs> it's a merging of that and Ferris Bueller. Exactly. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> yeah, so it just made me start thinking about like the idea of time off, the, the idea of leisure, kind of the history of leisure and how that ties into concepts of labor. Because leisure and having days off really is a privilege that they don't have to worry about survival. They don't have to worry about working or making food or or anything else that would stop their survival. And frankly, most people throughout history have had to be pretty constantly focused on survival. But in the last couple hundred years, as industrialization kind of came in, I think it has this very interesting historical relationship with the idea of leisure because... It almost creates this idea of leisure, this idea that industrialization will bring so much efficiency that people won't have to work all the time and that they can have time to spend on hobbies, on themselves. Uh, You know, different time periods have had focuses on art or philosophy or spirituality or, or other kinds of things you can use that leisure time for. But industrialization did not lead to more leisure. For many, it led to more work and more dangerous work, and typically for less pay. Because capitalism meant that, okay, we can create things more efficiently in higher quantities. So production goes up, but that means that standards are going up, expectations are going up for how much to produce. And so as the prices of these goods go far down, more people are buying them, consuming them, and so more want to be sold and sold at a lower price. So there's a greater push for production as that demand goes up, and thus people continue to be pushed to do more work. 
Well, and then they just create demands out of nothing. Exactly. And like fast fashion. Mm-hmm. And it becomes this kind of, what we've talked about before, this kind of all-consuming desire for consumption, where even some of the early 20th century arguments about the work week had people arguing that, oh no, if you make people work less, that means they're going to have less money, which means they're going to have less money to spend. And that's the most important thing for our economy. So the higher work week means that more we're going to have more money, which means that more consumption, ergo a stronger economy, apparently. I mean, you could pay people more. Okay, okay. <laughs> Let's not get ridiculous, Brittany. All right? <laughs> but yes, exactly, right? It's it's all about the idea of, of work. And so leisure isn't about, for so many people throughout history, leisure was not about self-fulfillment it was about consumption it was about how you are as a source of labor and then a customer so yeah just their day off kind of made me think about how they were able to really have this privilege where not only because they're both going to be thrown into a life-threatening arena again and they've spent the last year and change fearing for their lives, but that also it, yeah, means a kind of escape, at least temporarily, from these really intense demands on one's life. So yeah, I was just thinking a lot about kind of the ideas of uh, who has access to leisure and what leisure means. Yeah, that kind of history of leisure, of which I'm not an expert in, but I find fascinating. Could have fooled me with all of your video games. Oh, I'm personally <laughs> very good at leisure. Uh, <laughs> it's one of my few skills, really. But uh, your kindred spirit <laughs> is the couch potato. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but I meant I'm not an expert in the history of leisure. <laughs> oh, oh, I know what you meant. Just thought I'd take a jab. Yeah, yeah, that sounds like it you. is the Hunger Games after all. <laughs> What about you? What are your touch points? So one I was thinking about is, you know, how previously I'd been talking about reading different characters from different districts as coming from areas where we're getting those goods imported from, right? Mm -hmm. And I'd actually always read Beatty as from Chinese or Taiwanese descent. Mm. I mean, it, it makes sense. They have black hair and ashen coloring, something like that. Yeah, which I'm not sure exactly what that means, frankly. I'm not either, but it's not dark, but it's not light either. Mm -hmm. And so when it gets to the word chink in the armor, Mm -hmm. I, I was always kind of like, yeah, like I get it in the armor sense because that is the word for it. And, you know, it has a longer history than the slur does. But it just kind of was hitting me differently mm. in in this read through, and even now, Wyrus is like, "Look, you know, over there, whatever," and then Cadis is like, well, "What? What is that?" Wyrus just says, "Drink," and then Beatty has to take over and explain what she means by that. Yes, thankfully. Yeah, thankfully. But um, it, it was just making me think. So so if listeners aren't aware, that is a racial slur against East and Southeast Asians for their eye shape. Mm-hmm. The actual word means a narrow opening or crack, typically one that emits light. Hmm. But starting in the late 1800s and continuing on till now, unfortunately... It's a slur disparaging East Asians and Southeast Asians. It's used in the US and the UK, in Australia. We think about school mascots and how terrible it is when schools use Native Americans as mascots, which is abhorrent. I was surprised to learn that Peckin County High School in Illinois were officially known as the Peckin Chinks until 1981. 
Yeah, that is too recent. I mean, any time would be too I recent mean, because yeah. it should never have happened. But yes. I'm not surprised that it happened at some point. But still, yeah, yeah that's absurd. Fascinatingly, the slur, or a version of it, has been used in India against people with more East Asian features, mm. particularly people from the Northeast India or Nepal. Mm. So, all that to say, when I read that word and I'm thinking about them in this context, Wires and Beatty, it just, yeah, kind of led me to some questions about how language is used, you yeah. know, how a white author's biases influence the word choices. You would think that the racial slur would probably stay longer than this very old word <laughs> that usually we only hear in terms of armor. Yeah, you know? and how much armor exists in the capital. Exactly. So you would think that they would use the word gap or, you know, something like that. Yeah. Or Suzanne Collins could have used the word gap. And so in their interaction, I could read it either way. I could read it as Wyrus and Beatty don't have any history with this word. They mm. don't have, there's nothing uncomfortable about it. Like, it's not a slur that they or anyone in their family would have experienced against them. Beatty was finishing a lot of Wyrus's sentences as she was dropping off, but I could also see reading in some like, oh, let let me <laughs> explain this here. Mm -hmm. uh, so, I don't know, it was, it was just something that was standing out to me. Yeah, absolutely. Another thing is the bringing back the greatest hits of using the weapons of the enemy against them mm. and breaking the parameters. I was thinking about that too, yeah. Yeah, that the capital sets for the rules. Katniss and Peeta definitely do that. I love that they have die like staining their hands, mm. but it was the capital that couldn't scrub the die away, mm. you know? Like they were trying so hard and they couldn't do it because it's like, no, they, their hands are stained with the blood of all these people. So yeah. I just liked that. Yeah, that's great. I was even also thinking about the using the tools of the oppressor against them with the interviews. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, where they, they're using the notoriety that they gained, the celebrity that they gained by surviving a mass sacrificial ritual mm -hmm. to, yeah, poke at Snow and the Capitol. Yeah, I mean, this thing that they're forced into doing, now they're going to do and turn against the exactly. people in power. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Love it. And the last thing I was kind of thinking about is just the moment when Katniss is wearing her interview wedding dress outfit. She has pearls everywhere, including wrapped around her neck like rope. Mm. And it just made me think of the clutching pearls idiom, mm -hmm. which is great. But it's being put on her and it's wrapping around her neck like a noose. And so I just thought that that was like a beautiful symbolic representation of capitalism, mm. of the luxury, elitism, the wealth. Refinement. Exactly. Yeah. Is wrapping a noose around some people's necks. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great metaphor. Yeah. I was like, I like that. I mean, I hate it, but you know what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. Like all things Hunger Games. <laughs> but what do we move into our wonderments? Do you have something that you're wondering leaving these chapters? One thing that I was wondering was why Katniss didn't want to react to Darius because it might result in punishment for him because he was placed there intentionally because they wanted to elicit reaction from Katniss. So it just made me start thinking like, is there a middle management who's like responsible for the day-to-day -day overseeing of the AVOXs who have no idea why Darius is there and so aren't in on how he's being used as a way to torture Katniss and so would respond negatively if they saw an interaction that they didn't understand? Yeah, I just, I just kind of wondering how many people are in on those kinds of decisions. Mm-hmm. And then the other question I had was just why it was so important for them to stick to the idea that they were in love 
in the training center, which is not open to the public, for them to feel like they have to do that just to the other victors and to the game makers. Katniss is so far away from wanting to quell the idea that there would be an uprising that was their original reason for keeping that going. I just, I feel a little kind of unsure as to why that was still so important to Haymitch and Katniss and Peeta. Hmm. Yeah, that is a good question. I didn't think about that. What about you? What are you wondering about? I was wondering what Katniss and Caesar talked about before the Mockingjay dress moment. Mm, or tried to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just wonder if Katniss felt the need to say anything inflammatory, or did she think her presence in that dress was enough to enrage districts along with the capital, mm. and she didn't feel any pressure? Oh no, I missed my chance. They can't hear the inflammatory things I'm saying, you know? Yeah, that's actually a really good question. And I think that kind of makes me think now. I'm not sure if I like that choice. The only thing that's happening in that interview is her doing the twirl because mm-hmm. Katniss isn't really doing much there, right? After she... It's sin is active. Exactly. Fight, it's not hers. Yeah. yeah. Like, and, and it's right after her picking up the call for martyrdom, of sacrifice, mm-hmm. of being an inspiration. And then she goes out in one of the most important places for her to be able to do so and while all the other victors are many of the other victors are speaking out against the capital she doesn't really or we don't see her do so yeah interesting if this was our old format i might have called that a missed opportunity Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah i could see it being that a lot of the times that she does pick up that call is when no one else is Mm -hmm. so i could see her feeling more like okay, they can't hear over the yelling crowd. And so my little jab is going to be, yeah, it's so sad that you can't come to our wedding. Mm -hmm. Because that that is egging on the capital, but it's not for the districts. Or maybe she felt like seeing these other victors from all of these other districts that she doesn't have any connection to speaking out against the capital that they would be the inspiration to their own people which is probably true Mm -hmm. but yeah yeah it's just something that i have a question about Mm -hmm. yeah and last thing has a spoiler for the end of this book so uh, if you haven't finished it yet skip one minute ahead i just wonder about the secret revolutionary meetings that are taking place that clearly Haymitch and Cinna and Peta and Beatty and, you know, Fennec, Johanna, like they're going to, right? Yeah, not Peta, which you said, but yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah, not Peta. <laughs> Portia mm-hmm. is who I meant. Because Candace keeps noticing that they're not around when she expects them to be around. Yeah, and they so, have a whole day off. And yeah. what are they doing that so day? They're yeah. clearly going places. So, yeah, I just want to know about how all of those things happened and one of our patrons asked us to talk about that a little bit more in our special episode that we do just for our patrons we just recently did an episode for our patreon that talks more in depth about contingency plans and options and things like that that we think about when we think about what was going on behind closed doors come join us on patreon and get access to all sorts of conspiracy theories (laughs) yeah little tease for you non-patrons out there oh tease bring some sugar cubes (laughs) we all know that finnick can sweeten the teas oh i see what you did there yeah Good one. (laughs) Thanks, Chris. (laughs) But why don't we close this episode out talking about any intentions we're bringing from these chapters of this conversation to our own lives? Yeah, my intention is to try to build for myself Katniss's sense of mission that she gets here that Mm. I've mentioned a few times. Her acceptance that she's doing something valuable. I certainly, I think... With the state of the world and the state of education and my students. The state of your students and how bad they are. The state of (laughs) how they've been failed by education systems. Mm -hmm. And, you know, 
a, a dash of my own depression. Uh, it can sometimes <laughs> make me... Just a sprinkle. Just a sprinkle. Uh, can make me feel kind of down and like I'm not doing anything as a teacher. Like, uh, you know, mm. it's not it's not something that is helpful or productive. So, yeah, I just would love to have a little bit more of that sense that Katniss gains here, at least momentarily, and be able to try to kind of build up my own sense of fulfillment and belief in the good of my vocation. Mm. What about you? What's your intention? Mine is just going off of that point of view I was talking about from a random audience member from the Capitol. So just trying to be more intentional about how much I'm paying attention to people who aren't the ones that society or even important movements put forward as the ones to pay attention to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's good. Stupid society. <laughs> Generally. <laughs> well, that will wrap up our conversation then. So what's happening next time on The Hunger Games? So we're going to be reading chapters 18 and 19, where Katniss and friends hold hands. Aw, cute. I'm sure Snow will find that adorable. I'm sure. I'm sure. Well, listeners, as we virtually hold your hands across the podcast medium, thank you so much for listening. You can find links. Just regretted listening. (laughs) (laughs) So be it. You can find links to our social media, our website, and our Patreon in the episode description. And we'd love for you to join us on Patreon so you can get access to all sorts of extra goodies like the bonus episode that we mentioned earlier. We want to thank Kimberly Taylor Pastel at Lacelet for designing our logo. You can find our designs at lacelet.com or searching for Lacelet on Instagram or Patreon. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Until then, geek out!